0: Welcome to
1: Pedagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're Pediatric Residents at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into the case. All right, Tammy. So you have a 16-year-old male presenting for a well-adolescent exam. He hasn't been seen for the past several years. On chart review, you notice that his history is notable for morbid obesity. There's also a strong family history of type 2 diabetes. Other than obesity, his exams and vitals are stable. Hemoglobin A1c is 7.2%, and you initiate appropriate therapy.
0: So I've noticed we're starting to see more and more type 2 diabetes in our patient population. At least a third of these new diagnosis diabetes in pediatrics are now type 2. So this is probably due to our growing childhood obesity issue.
1: Yeah, and as pediatricians, we're probably not as well-equipped to manage this disease as we are with type 1 diabetes. However, it is becoming more and more common, so we definitely will need to be more comfortable with it. So let's take a look at the 2013 AAP and the 2018 International Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Diabetes, or ISPAD, guidelines on managing type 2 diabetes. So they looked at publications since 1990, including clinical trials, meta-analyses, and abstracts. And from this data, they created a set of consensus guidelines. In general, the recommendations are very much limited by the lack of data available in the pediatric population. So most of these are not strongly backed by a preponderance of evidence, but are what seem to be the most prudent based on what we know about this disease looking at the adult population.
0: So what do they recommend? The first is to initiate insulin therapy when in diabetic ketoacidosis, aka DKA, or when the A1C is greater than 9%. The quality of evidence is limited, but still a strong recommendation based on the preponderance of benefit over harm in this situation.
1: Remember that we mentioned in a previous episode that it can be hard to distinguish between type 1 and type 2 initially. So, the first line initial management for both is still going to be insulin when a patient presents with DKA. When the patient presents in DKA, even a known patient with type 2 diabetes, you should still treat with insulin first. This is because the risk of lactic acidosis with metformin can exacerbate their illness.
0: So, once you know, it's type 2 diabetes, the AAP recommends lifestyle modification and metformin as first-line treatment. This is also based on multiple studies comparing metformin versus lifestyle modification alone. The reason is that patients are very poorly adherent to lifestyle modifications alone. There is a high loss to follow-up and high comorbidity of diabetes with depression. Metformin is preferred because it can cause weight loss, and there are fewer sticks and pain versus the insulin alone, and it can normalize menstrual cycles and have better adherence. So should we talk a little bit more about metformin?
1: Yeah, so the mechanism of action is pretty complex, but generally you can think of it as working by making your body more sensitive to insulin. When starting metformin, remember that GI upset is very common. So patients can have abdominal pain, bloating, and loose stools. Taking it with food can help alleviate some of these symptoms, and usually these symptoms will improve over time. So start with a low dose, like 500 milligrams, and then titrate up to 2,000 milligrams as needed to effect.
0: More recent evidence suggests that metformin alone may not be sufficient for adequate glycemic control in type 2 diabetes in children. If you still have poor control, even with metformin and insulin, then you might consider GLP-1 agonists as third line. Remember that these are the hormones that stimulate insulin release. You might remember them as the medications that end with glutide, like liraglutide, or exenotide. However, most other agents have not been as well studied in children, and for that reason, they're not FDA-approved for use in children. Sulfonylureas, for example, are not recommended at this point because of the increased risk for hypoglycemia and more loss of beta cell function. So when you start to consider additional agents, it's probably worth consulting a pediatric endocrinologist
1: at that point. Yeah. Let's hear from Dr. Carolyn Schillmeister, one of our pediatric endocrinologists at UC Davis on next-line Medications.
0: So the most recently approved um, medication outside of metformin and insulin for um, individuals with type 2 who are children um, are GLP-1 agonists, um, also known as Victoza, um, although there are other um, names for different types and these are great medications It um, help lower blood sugars should not have hypoglycemia with it um, and they actually also have the added benefit of, of weight loss um, so it's actually also approved to be used in weight loss um, for kids who don't even have diabetes um, so that's kind of a new exciting um, development that we now have Um, It does require an injection, which some people are a little bit wary of, but we we definitely have seen good results with using this medication. So other recommendations in the guidelines have low-quality evidence but are reasonable based on the adult data. One of them is to routinely check hemoglobin A1c levels with a target less than 6.5 to 7%. Remember that the A1c gives a general sense of your blood glucose for about the past three months. It's unclear how frequently you should be checking this and how tightly you should be targeting the A1C levels to prevent long-term vascular disease. They also recommend checking sugars regularly when on insulin, but it's unclear how frequently we should be checking these sugars.
1: Yeah, Tammy, there's a pretty wide variability among providers in terms of the sugar checking regimen recommended. In general, it probably makes sense to check more frequently if the patient is acutely ill, not in good control, or changing regimens, but there's not really clear guidelines on what that schedule should look like. It may end up being a shared decision between the individual patient and the provider.
0: And finally, they recommend nutritional counseling, regular exercise, and reducing screen time for all patients with type 2 diabetes. Again, there's no good data to support this, but these are general expert opinions based on adult data. And the fact is that they're low-risk interventions. Things like portion control with low-fat foods, calorie-free drinks, and lots of fruits and vegetables are reasonable things to recommend to your patients. All patients should aim for at least 60 minutes of high physical activity and reducing screen time to less than two hours per day. And all of this, again,
1: is to reduce our cardiovascular risk. The Limitations of these recommendations, as we know is common in pediatrics, Sammy, is due to the lack of data in pediatric settings. We don't know how aggressively we should be treating children with type 2 diabetes compared to the adults. Should we be treating them more aggressively because they have a longer time period of carrying the disease and therefore increased risk of developing poor vascular complications?
0: Those are good questions. In prelim data, this seems to be the case for type 1 diabetes, but it's unclear for type 2 diabetes. We also need more data on other diabetic agents in children. The only ones that are FDA approved for use in children are insulin, metformin, and incretins. While there are a plethora of other agents used in adults, we really don't know whether the other ones are safe or effective in children.
1: So bottom line is that we don't have a lot of data on type 2 diabetes in children, but in general, insulin and metformin with lifestyle modification are our first-line therapies for now until we have more evidence for other medications. Encouraging good dieting habits and physical activity is an important part of promoting their health and transition into adulthood.
0: That's all for this episode. You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources. Please rate and subscribe
1: to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at PedagogyPod, that's P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Orlando Mogania for podcasting production support and Dr. Su-Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vanderlist for supervision.
0: We are supported by funding from the UC Davis Medical Center Department of Pediatrics and the Western Association of Pediatric Program Directors.